This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Leah Greenberg. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Yelena Aronova about her book, Scientific History, Experiments in History and Politics from the Bolshevik Revolution to the End of the Cold War, which came out in 2021 with the University of Chicago Press. Welcome to the podcast, and thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Hello, Leah. That's a pleasure to be here. So a little bit of background about our author today. Um, Yelena Aronova is Associate Professor at the Department of History at the University of California, Santa Barbara. She is a historian of science, the author of today's book, Scientific History, and co-editor of Science Studies During the Cold War and Beyond, Paradigms Defected. That's from Palgrave in 2016. And of Data Histories, University of Chicago Press 2017. Besides these book-length publications, she has published many articles and chapters on the history and politics of environmental data collection, the history of evolutionary biology, and the history of science studies during the Cold War, which we'll be discussing today as well. So your latest book is the subject of our discussion today, but before we tackle this work in depth, I wanted to ask you first if you'd tell us a bit about yourself. This is something that you touch on in the preface of um, scientific history. Uh, What brought you to the field of scientific history, to history more generally? Sure. Uh, So a short answer is that it was, in fact, not an interest in history or history of science, for that matter, that originally brought me to uh, the studies. So in terms of uh, telling a little bit about my background, I graduated from a chemistry department of the Moscow State University in 1991. So it was the same year as uh, the the country that uh, gave me education had ceased to exist. And uh, I began to work in molecular biology, which was my field in Moscow, in a laboratory of uh, gene bioengineering in the Institute of Bioorganic Chemistry. And uh, if you know a little bit of uh, Soviet history or post-Soviet history or how Soviet Union handled, you probably could guess that uh, uh, it was not really a great time to do molecular biology in Russia. Uh, the Soviet Union has just dissolved itself, and uh, we feed the Soviet economy dissolved. And as the country was going through this uh, series of uh, crash reforms aimed at uh, restructuring the Soviet economic system and transition to market economy, so the system of science was disintegrating really fast. In my own experience, I saw how the supply chain for, for example, chemical reagents that we needed became in jeopardy because some of our suppliers were in the former Soviet republics that became independent countries. There was no hard 
currency to pay for foreign uh, journal subscriptions or for some lab essentials. So doing research in such fast developing field as molecular biology uh, increasingly felt to me like trying to catch a fast moving train riding a bike. And so it was at this juncture uh, that I discovered by accident, really, that uh, there was uh, an institute for the history of science and technology in Moscow, and uh, that institute offered a graduate program. And by then, I quit um, the research lab in the institute, and uh, I moved to a small startup lab that was developing a PCR test for various diseases. And of course, now we all know about PCR. This is one of the tests for COVID, right? But back in the 1990s, it was a new and cool technology. Uh, so starting the first, basically the first PCR testing facility in Russia was really exciting. But uh, it soon became just a routine work of testing. And I felt that uh, I was really losing direction and purpose of what I was doing and why, because I always wanted to be a scientist, I wanted to be a researcher. And so the history of science at this juncture in my life looked like an ideal solution in my situation. I could still be a researcher, I could still pursue my interest in science just by other means. So that was my initial drive uh, to the field of uh, history of science. And uh, in this period, I wrote a thesis on the recent rekindling of uh, Lamarckian ideas in molecular biology and immunology. And I did this largely because I wanted to understand biological theory in the first place, rather than to understand the past per se. And just uh, as, a, as a kind of anecdote, I remember when my mentor, historian Daniel Alexandrov, asked me at some point after listening for a while how I talked about my project. So he asked, what are you interested in, history or theory? And I found the question almost silly. Of course, I was interested in theory. Um, that is, I looked at the history of biology to understand biology better. So this is where I started. And uh, uh, this is what really uh, kind of initially brought me to the field of the history of science. But at the same time, by the time I finished my thesis in Russia, I became genuinely interested in history. And so um, to cut the story short, I ended up pursuing another PhD in history in uh, the US uh, at the University of California in San Diego. And uh, as I was doing my second PhD, which was much easier <laughs> to do than the first one, I have to say, so I was, uh, for the first time really, going through a program of training in history as a graduate student in the history department at UCSD. And I was really interested uh, at that time, at that point, to learn what is historical method and how doing history is substantively different from doing science. 
To be sure, historians don't do experiments, uh, but some scientists say uh, in geology or in uh, evolutionary biology, they don't do experimental work either. And some of the methodologies and indeed the fundamental methods of doing research are the same across sciences and the humanities. So these methods include collecting, processing, describing, analyzing, and interpreting data, and uh, writing compelling narratives backed by uh, evidential support that uh, corroborate conclusions. So I did this kind of work as a scientist, and I continue to do this as a historian. So against this common image of natural sciences and humanistic history being at odds or even in a binary opposition uh, towards each other, I, I was interested in finding commonalities and um, different intersections between the methodologies, between the communities of scientists and historians, and intersections between their histories as well. So this is basically motivated me. Uh, so it, it started as a, as a kind of side or kind of uh, interest that I pursued while I was doing other projects, but this interest never quit me really, and uh, that basically motivated me to write this book eventually. So perhaps then we'll take a step back and um, define what we even mean by history of science and scientific history. You pointed to this idea, this notion that uh, natural sciences and the humanities might be considered at odds. And you discussed this uh, in your in the earlier part of your book, in the 19th century in particular. What was the contested relationship between the humanities and the natural sciences? And then what were the efforts to, to bring these together? So I, I will start with um, uh, this moniker, uh, scientific history, because this term, this phrase is ambiguous. It has, and it's uh, being used in different uh, ways, and it has different meanings. And at the same time, it conveys uh, some of the tensions um, in this relation or in the perception of the relation between uh, science and history. So scientific history is kind of simplifying. It might be said that uh, it's been used largely in two senses. So in, on the one hand, the phrase refers to uh, the historiographical school of uh, Leopold von Ranker, uh, who established the standards for professional history uh, based on reading, careful reading, and uh, criticism of documents found in archives. And that happened at a time when uh, history became a profession. And this uh, process of professionalization of history also implied that uh, historians had to justify how historical science, or Wissenschaftsgeschichte, was different from other sciences. And so one um, of uh, the important and influential articulation of uh, this juxtaposition uh, between history and natural sciences was articulated by philosophers in Germany, such as Wilhelm Dilthe and um, another Wilhelm uh, Windelband. So, so while... Um, being distinct from our sciences, history 
as the argument went, was aimed at providing objective knowledge about the past. And uh, so there was a talk in England, in America, and uh, in European countries of the need to establish history as an objective science modeled on natural sciences. First of all, physics, uh, the paradigmatic science in the 19th century. And so this term scientific history came to be used also in this wider sense as a kind of proxy for certain assumptions that historians came to be quite critical of later on, specifically in the second half of the 20th century, when scientific history became a label for that noble dream of uh, objectivity, as one historian has put it. And that dream of scientific history has become increasingly more and more problematic as historians question those categories of science as a model of objectivity in history writing. So scientific history came to denote those these aspirations of history to a status as a science and uh, something at the same time, something that historians came to contest and even detest. So that, that's kind of a, a very uh, schematic <laughs> sort of overview of uh, the contestations. But I, I wanted to, and it's kind of important for the book, that there is another effort and now forgotten sense in which this term scientific history was being used. When the history of science emerged as a separate scholarly field in the first decades of the 20th century, its practitioners used the terms history of science and scientific history interchangeably. And so as an actor's category, this term underscored this early vision of the field of the history of science as a hybrid and interdisciplinary a liaison or a mediator between natural sciences and humanistic history. And so in the book, I use this phrase scientific history in this third sense as an actor's category denoting this early vision of the history of science as a bridge between uh, humanistic history and uh, natural sciences. And so just one thing to add here is that among the motivations uh, to write this book is uh, this uh, renewed, current renewed interest in bridging history and science again together with uh, such programs uh, within historical profession as big history or deep history or biohistory, all these different programs that claim new modes of engagement with the natural sciences. And uh, some uh, historians, among historians of science, um, so such historians as, um, for example, Marian Sommer or Nasser Zaharia, and uh, Deborah Cohen, just to name a few. So these historians of science have begun to sort of provincialize this current scientific turn in history, pointing out that uh, this is uh, merely a most recent episode in a longer trajectory stretching over two, even three centuries. So I see my book as contributing to this um, scholarship that aims to historicize this most recent scientific turn in history uh, profession. And in my book, however, I argue that the history of the history of science itself can be very insightful 
in this regard by revealing those different interdisciplinary contexts in which historians and scientists interacted and uh, the techniques that enacted this interaction and uh, also the political uses of uh, those programs and how they were used or positioned as a support for different political ideologies. And on the subject of these various actors, in particular intellectuals that, that you focus on in the book and their programs, I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about how you went about mapping out these networks, since you cover a wide mm-hmm. geographic ideological range by looking at different intellectual figures from from France, from Great Britain, from the Soviet Union. What was your uh, approach to bringing together such such a disparate network? I mean, they were all connected indeed, but you, of course, had to narrow down your choices in telling the story. Yeah, so the the uh, history of scientific history is obviously a very, very large topic, and uh, I didn't want uh, to write anything reminding uh, an encyclopedia. So this is uh, definitely not uh, an encyclopedic work. So I had two, uh, I would say, two uh, selection selection criteria of sort. So first is a more practical one. So in this book, I use not practical, but rather kind of device that helped me both to select the protagonist, but also to write the story. And uh, in this book, I use one event, which is very well-known event in the history of uh, my field, in the history of history of science. So this is uh, the second International Congress uh, of the History of Science and Technology, which held in 1931 in London. And I use this uh, Congress as a kind of anchor for the story I tell in the book. This Congress has become almost a legend among the historians of science, largely due to a last-minute arrival of uh, a representative delegation from the Soviet Union, which was led by a noted politician Nikolai Bukharin. And uh, the presentations by Bukharin, but especially by Boris Hassan, one of uh, the participants and uh, the delegate, the Soviet delegate to the Congress. So this presentation by Hassan in particular has galvanized historians of science. And uh, it left an important legacy in social constructivist approach in science studies and history, social history of science. What is important for uh, the story I tell in my book is that the Congress featured a mix of prominent scientists and uh, historians. So imagine this uh, very large meeting at a time uh, those congresses counted uh, hundreds of participants. And so it was a mix of scientists and historians talking to each other and learning from each other. So therefore, this uh, congress presents, uh, I argue, a vantage point from which we can trace different intellectual and, I would argue, critical intellectual encounters between historians and scientists and track their legacies. So in this book, I take this event, which um, has pretty substantive bibliography, but at the same time, historians who looked at the history of this Congress looked at it as 
an event important for the disciplinary history of the history of science. And I take this event out of this disciplinary history of the history of science and uh, resituate it within a larger movement for the unification of knowledge, a movement within which the history of science was perceived as a bridge and a, or a mediator between natural sciences and history, and it was practiced accordingly. So this is one selective principle and uh, a kind of device to plot the story. And uh, on the other hand, uh, I have um, another selecting criteria, (laughs) you may say, which is more methodological and uh, theoretical even. I call this um, Russia as method, and with this I mean that uh, I use Russia as a geographical site and as a specific standpoint from which I want to reposition the history of historiographical thought and uh, the history of uh, historical methodology as a story of continuous circulation, appropriation, and modification of knowledge and uh, practices between Russia, both Imperial and Soviet Russia, and other localities. So Russia is a, presents an advantageous place from which to tell the story of scientific history, because, uh, for instance, this drive towards the scientifically grounded history was very strong, in particular in Soviet Russia, in the, in the Soviet Union. In the early years especially, uh, there was a particular willingness in the Soviet Union to tear down those old disciplinary boundaries in the name uh, and within the framework of uh, Marxism. So I use this Russia, and kind of, uh, by Russia I refer to a geographical region continuous with Imperial uh, Russian Empire and then the Soviet Union. So it's a kind of geographical, uh, I use this uh, in a geographical sense rather than Russia as a nation. So I, I use Russia not only as a geographical locus of my research, but rather as a method to denaturalize certain ways of thinking about the history of historiography that kind of extrapolate Western history into a lens through which all other histories are viewed and using West as a method. So I'm driving and kind of drawing loosely on um, the discussion among Asian uh, scholars in uh, Asian science and technology studies uh, about Asia as method. And so I'm using Russia as method in a similar sense. So with uh, those um, geographical and um, kind of uh, historical foci, I contain uh, the story and contain research within something that is manageable and uh, also presents an opportunity to tell uh, a continuous and hopefully meaningful story. 
and you've you've touched on the idea of Russia's negotiation of its place in the world and, and relative to the West. I was wondering if you could expand a bit more on what you discuss in chapter two, the sort of key players such as Bukharin and the engagement with uh, history of science and science emerging from the West and the Soviet Union's positioning of itself in developing its own approaches. Right, sure. I... Uh... Maybe I should uh, start by saying um, a few words uh, about kind of background that I laid out in chapter one first, because uh, those two chapters, uh, chapter one and chapter two, um, they um, set up uh, the kind of background for the rest of the book by outlining certain key themes in the book. Uh, so first of all, Paul, what is important for uh, the framing of the book is uh, an international movement for the unity of knowledge in its particular French variety. And so this is the background that uh, I set up uh, in the first chapter, introducing and uh, talking about the positivist philosophy and, uh, of course, scientific history, uh, one of the meanings and connotations of the term is uh, positivist history. Right, and so positivism, positivist philosophy, positivist uh, history as a moniker uh, is an important context that uh, I felt was important to explain in the beginning of the book. What is important for my story is that, and again, I'm kind of retailing the history of positivism, but at the same time, I'm focusing on the fact that. Uh, within this French Kantian uh, positivist movement or uh, positivist philosophy, uh, history was occupying a central place. So as a center of Kantian positivism uh, or was this uh, system of unified system of knowledge which, which was uh, anchored in history. And so it was this all-embracing concept of history that underpinned uh, the work of uh, one of uh, the central protagonists in the book, uh, the philosopher Henri Baer, and uh, his program of uh, historical synthesis, which was profoundly positivist. And Baer is an important figure uh, for different reasons. One of uh, those reasons is that uh, he uh, created important institutions to promote his program of uh, historical synthesis. In particular, he founded the International Center of Synthesis in Paris, which was devoted to this uh, historical synthesis through orchestrating collaborative work involving historians and natural scientists. And uh, within the center, the history of science played a special role. So for Baer, history of science was, and uh, this is uh, uh, a quote that I uh, used you know, in the book, History of science was a liaison between the sciences of nature and those in the humanities. And one of the center's activities were, uh, for example, regular weeks of synthesis 
um, that is uh, the events in which scientists, historians, and uh, other humanities scholars uh, talked about um, you know, topics of common interest. And those topics ranged from uh, biological evolution and cultural evolution to the theory of relativity, quantum mechanics, and uh, the implications to uh, the way how we understand the nature of time, for instance. What is uh, important, and uh, this is uh, sets up uh, the narrative arc in the book, is that uh, the very first uh, week of synthesis that inaugurated the center also inaugurated the Congress of the History of Science. Uh, and uh, it also was connected to the Annal School of um, Historiography. Lucien Febre, uh, who was uh, the co-founder of the journal uh, that gave the Annal School its name, also co-directed the Center of Synthesis along with Baer who was his mentor. And uh, the, um, both the center and uh, the um, journal Annal were founded in the same year, and both uh, stemmed from uh, one of uh, Bear's uh, collaborative project aimed at producing a total history of human past, Bear's series, Evolution of Humanity. So this chapter, this first chapter, uh, sets up those some of the main themes of the book are content positivism with this its uh, methodological argumentation for history as the epitome of the sciences, not the other way around, and also for history of science, uh, which was conceived as a bridge between sciences, natural sciences, and the humanities. And uh, the third important theme that ran throughout the book is internationalism. For the institutions uh, that were set up to pursue the unification of knowledge through history, not only interdisciplinary, but uh, they were also decidedly internationalist. And the goal of uh, interdisciplinarity was closely tied to the internationalist aspirations of those proponents of uh, unity of knowledge and historical synthesis. So this unity of knowledge, which was achieved through interdisciplinary cooperation between scientists and historians, uh, was seen uh, in the early 20th century as a means to the unity of the world and as a means to prevent wars. So Bear's uh, center of um, international center of synthesis was, uh, for instance, closely associated with uh, the League of Nations and its institutions. And of course, the League of Nations was the organization that promoted international cooperation as a means to maintain world peace. So this is an important context and uh, an, an important background behind those programs for the unity of knowledge. So it was not just, you know, this fancy idea to unify, you know, uh, different branches of knowledge, but uh, it was conceived as, as a very important uh, task politically. 
So the argument was that we need to, you know, to fight, to deal with uh, specialization and try to counteract this uh, increase in specialization, uh, not for the sake of knowledge per se, but uh, for the sake of humanity. So that was this kind of large aspiration. And uh, this international agenda was in turn linked to uh, left-wing politics um, of the centers and uh, of uh, the protagonists. So, okay, um, moving to uh, chapter two and uh, just uh, briefly uh, to summarize what um, I wanted to do in this chapter. So I, I uh, first, uh, I uh, this chapter introduces Russia as a site of uh, appropriation and circulation of knowledge uh, associated with uh, scientific history. Uh, starts with, uh, you know, uh, the ways how Russian historians had uh, close ties to their Western uh, European counterparts. And uh, they pursued, you know, and participated in this movement for scientific history through the venue of uh, international historical uh, congresses before the revolution and after the revolution. The political entanglement of uh, the leading champions of uh, scientific history in Russia uh, left them vulnerable to the Bolshevik retaliation. So when professional historians were removed from their posts as historical interpreters of uh, contemporary events in post-revolutionary Russia, politicians took their place. And one such Marxist politician, Nikolai Bukharin, not only uh, offered some historical interpretations, but also he entered the academic debates on history, on its method, and uh, on its theory in relation to science. So for Bukharin, the Second International Congress of the History of Science in London was an opportunity not only to showcase a Marxist synthesis, but also to confront uh, the dean of historical synthesis, Henri Baer, whom he met at uh, London and arranged to stage a debate at the next International Congress, confronting those uh, two versions of uh, historical synthesis. So with uh, this uh, uh, kind of these intertwined stories are uh, all converging in the uh, second International Congress for the History of Science in London, these two chapters set up the stage for the rest of the book by presenting and introducing those uh, two major frameworks uh, of the unity uh, of knowledge rooted in those two major intellectual formations of the 19th century, that is positivism and Marxism and their versions of historical synthesis. So the rest of the book uh, follows other participants of the Congress and uh, traces other varieties of scientific history. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it 
a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. And in the third chapter, you look in particular at genetics in terms of using scientific knowledge to understand the past, to gain insights about the past. So I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about, about the development of uh, genetics and also of this genogeography and how it influenced epistemologies in the 20th century and how it had this sort of outsized political role as well. So at the time uh, of the Congress, uh, genetics was uh, still a relatively young, uh, but at the same time flourishing disciplines. And uh, some geneticists um, in the 1920s uh, were thinking really big about uh, the possibilities of genetics to recover deep human past, complementing archaeological record with uh, the record imprinted in the genes. So this chapter, uh, chapter three, uh, focuses on one such geneticist, uh, the Soviet geneticist uh, Nikolai Vavilov, who developed an approach to genetics research uh, that was called, not by him, but uh, by others, uh, the genogeographic approach. So basically, the, the approach was uh, to order and systematize varietal diversity by organizing it on geographical grids. So Vavilov collected and assembled massive collection of plants, and uh, he built one of the largest uh, collections of uh, seeds in the world, which was um, became a model for uh, researchers in uh, other countries. So this chapter, so Vavilov is a very important figure and uh, lots of uh, scholarship uh, had been done on Vavilov and uh, tragic fate and uh, his research in genetics. In this uh, chapter, I focus on the, first of all, on uh, the way how Vavilov uh, used not only genetic methods, but uh, how he complemented genetic methods uh, with uh, historical research and uh, he how he uh, used linguistics and historical archive to complement uh, uh, data um, on variation. So importantly, so Vavilov had these um, ideas on how genetics can really provide uh, insights to historians uh, uncovering the past on the people and uh, their cultures that uh, didn't leave written records or our documents. And so for the first time, Vavilov presented uh, his um, conclusions on the historical implications of uh, his research at the Congress in London. And his paper at London was uh, really controversial because uh, he explicitly contradicted uh, some of the views of uh, the archaeologists and historians of the time. In particular, uh, Vavilov uh, took issue with then 
uh, recently, you know, popularized concept, notion, uh, concept of the fertile crescent. Uh, the term that um, referred to this uh, crescent-shaped strip of fertile and water-rich land in Mesopotamia and uh, Mediterranean region. And this strip of land, as the argument went, was the birthplace of agriculture and hence the cradle of uh, Western civilization. So Vavilov claimed that uh, his data image uh, of the origins of agriculture based on his genetics uh, research was at odds with this imagery of the fertile crescent. And uh, he uh, stressed, first of all, that according to his research, the first agricultural civilizations emerged in different places in the world, the places that uh, he identified as the centers of uh, genetic diversity. And uh, uh, he also stressed the importance of uh, the mountains rather than the water-rich valleys, which were uh, the center of uh, archaeologists' interests, uh, for example, at the time. And so uh, Vavilov's paper that uh, he presented at the Congress, and as I said, the Congress was uh, interesting, particularly interesting as this mix of uh, historians and uh, scientists talking to each other and learning from each other. And uh, not only Henri Baer was present at the conference, uh, but he also, several historians and several other members of uh, the Center of Synthesis were in London uh, because uh, the History of Science Unit was involved in the organization of uh, the Congress in London. And so Lucien Febre, uh, who was not in London, but uh, who was closely associated with uh, the center, became very interested in Vavilov's approach. And uh, Vavilov's work, and uh, in this chapter, I trace the ways uh, how historians associated with uh, the Annal School followed Vavilov's work uh, closely in the 1930s, and how Vavilov, in turn, not only bridged biology and history in his own work, but also served as a link between biologists in the Soviet Union and uh, historians in France. So this um, chapter, so while in the first two chapters, I focused on those large frameworks of positivism and Marxism as frameworks for unification of knowledge in those different varieties of historical synthesis. So this chapter uh, asks and focuses on how the specific content of science entered the programs of uh, those champions of scientific history. And the next chapter in particular looks also at the backlash against gen the field of genetics in the Soviet Union. But in particular, the chapter also focuses on the circulation or exchange of knowledge between the so-called West and the Soviet Union through the figure of the biologist Julian Huxley. So I was wondering if you could share with the listeners a bit more about what his particular engagement was with scientific debates and his particular investment in the Soviet Union, referred to his two cold wars, I believe. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, right. Uh, so this chapter, um, the at the center of this chapter is uh, this biologist, important biologist Julian Huxley, who was also a participant um, at the Congress in London. But uh, in this chapter, so this chapter does several things um, in terms of uh, the larger arc uh, of the story. So first, uh, it uh, brings the story to the Cold War and. Uh, it contextualizes Huxley's ideas of uh, evolutionary history against the background of his experiences with the Soviet Union. So he first uh, traveled to the Soviet Union uh, during the uh, Congress in London in 1931. Huxley was very active behind the scenes. Uh, He met uh, Vavilov and uh, he met other members of uh, the Soviet delegations uh, because he arranged uh, to go for a tour to visit the Soviet Union right after uh, the Congress. So he met Vavilov in Leningrad and visited and toured uh, his institute several weeks after the conclusion uh, of the Congress in London. He wrote a book about his travels and uh, all in all, even though he was he was a liberal in uh, his um, political views, um, liberal on liberal left side, and he was very interested, genuinely interested uh, in uh, Soviet uh, experiences uh, with planning and also with the um, uh, support of science. So he was very impressed by the scientific enterprises like uh, Vavilov's program and uh, his magnificent institute, which was on the um, tourist agenda and uh, uh, <clears throat> not only scientists, but uh, many Western intellectuals who toured and uh, who uh, visited the so- Soviet Union at the time to uh, see the Soviet experiment in action, they would come to see Vavilov and uh, to see how he organized his research and uh, his, ran his institute. But uh, Vavilov uh, soon, already by the late 1930s, uh, Vavilov became a center of uh, attacks, and uh, this is a very well-known uh, story of uh, the assault on genetics in the Soviet Union. Maybe the most researched topic in the history of science, in the whole of the history of science, and definitely in the history of Soviet science. So Vavilov is a center, uh, central uh, figure in the story because uh, he fell victim of the persecution of genetics. And Huxley was intimately involved in trying to figure out what is happening and being and witnessing uh, this, what he saw as a scientific paradise running amok and a nation that claimed to build a scientific socialism turning onto science. So against this background, uh, Huxley conceives a, a project, um, 
and uh, he works uh, on the uh, so-called uh, evolutionary synthesis, uh, and at the same time, uh, kind of a, a theory that synthesizes the Darwinian theory with uh, the modern developments uh, in genetics. So Huxley is one of uh, the architects of the evolutionary synthesis, but at the same time, he is uh, also very interested at thinking and articulating the larger implications of uh, the evolutionary synthesis. And so in this chapter, I trace how he comes uh, to the project of uh, scientific and cultural history that um, where he presents evolutionary history as a counterpart to uh, Soviet Marxism. So in this chapter, one, one of the things that uh, I'm trying to do in this chapter and uh, to uh, is to tell the story of scientific history as as an ideology uh, and uh, in this case an ideology that Huxley quite consciously instilled with uh, you know this uh, evolutionary history as an ideological response to Marxist ideology. So his argument was uh, by uh, the time when uh, this uh, Soviet uh, assault on uh, genetics became evident in the late 1940s and uh, the, at the height of the uh, Cold War, uh, Huxley quite explicitly argued that uh, West also needs an ideology to juxtapose uh, the Soviet one. And so he came up uh, with uh, the ideology of scientific history. So this is what uh, this chapter is ultimately about. And you then go on to explore Huxley's role as the first director of UNESCO. Can you tell us a bit more about the History of Mankind project that was initiated uh, in the 50s by this organization? What effect did this project have? What were its aims? And did it ultimately uh, succeed in critiquing a Eurocentric perspective? Right. So this chapter uh, basically continues the story of Huxley because what Huxley conceived as scientific and history, uh, scientific and cultural history, was uh, the project that uh, he, as at the time the first director of UNESCO, uh, so he considered that project as one of uh, the most important projects uh, for uh, this uh, organization. So. In this chapter, I tell the story of uh, this uh, project that uh, came to be known as uh, UNESCO's uh, History of Mankind, Scientific and Cultural Development. So this is how the um, uh, multiple-volume book came to be uh, titled by the end. But uh, as uh, each chapter focuses on a different brand of uh, scientific history, so the brand of scientific history at the focus of this chapter is collective history or a specific mode of uh, doing science or uh, research in and writing in collaboration that is very prominent in sciences. Think of big science model. 
and uh, the way how it was implemented in history. So this project that came at the time when different um, you know, scientists and commentators were grappling with uh, what um, would be later called big science. So this project was uh, a signal example of uh, big history in this sense. The history that involved uh, the leading historians of the time working together in large teams. So how to write history in collaboration? <laughs> this is a very uh, rare mode of uh, doing and writing history. And this uh, chapter tells, you know, and recover uh, this story of uh, the process of making uh, history of uh, mankind. And in particular, it focuses on the um, one of the project's two leaders, uh, Lucien Febre, whom we already met in early chapters, who became, uh, who had very interesting vision for how to write this uh, scientific and cultural history. But uh, his vision was rejected, but at the same time, he was given possibility to direct a journal associated with uh, this project. And uh, Lucien Febre really turned this journal into a sort of a laboratory for the project. And uh, it is within this uh, journal that uh, some of the feature of uh, the project, which turned out and ended up being a very Eurocentric uh, traditional history writing. So within this journal, the very feature of this uh, Eurocentric perspective was challenged, was discussed, and uh, was importantly critiqued. And so this critique later became you know, central for successive generations of world historians. And it's ironic to see how it was shaped uh, by those context of uh, Cold War and uh, uh, post-colonial nation building and how it reverberated in the echo chamber of Cold War internationalism within those uh, different international journals created for to support the uh, UNESCO projects. In our journal that um, I um, examine in this chapter is uh, the Soviet journal for world history, world culture that uh, played a similar role and was modeled after Lucien Febre journal. I want us to bring us now to the sixth uh, and final full chapter of your book, which is on the rise of data science. And you also cover the history of quantitative history. And one of the key figures in this chapter is this J.D. Bernal. How did he envision a sort of international anti-capitalist science and what role did data play? Right. Uh, so, um... So the last chapter 
in, in, uh, again, it's uh, uh, it follows this uh, love protagonist, the uh, British um, crystallographer and uh, Marxist and card carrying communist J.D. Bernal, and it's focused uh, on yet another variety of uh, scientific history, quantitative history, and on the linkages between computers, quantification and uh, historical research. So Bernal was the chapter, as other chapters, the chapter starts uh, at the Congress uh, of the History of Science and Technology in London in 1931, where uh, Bernal was uh, one of the participants, and then uh, follows uh, his campaign for what might be called inter- information socialism, and uh, his ideas uh, about uh, the role of information and the role of uh, uh, communication and the possibilities that uh, socialism, uh, in his view, opened uh, to more efficiently mine, organize, and communicate uh, data. And then uh, this campaign for information socialism intertwined with uh, the trajectory of uh, another protagonist, uh, the Philadelphia uh, library scientist and uh, entrepreneur Eugene Garfield, uh, who in the 1960s developed uh, the Science Citation Index, and uh, it pitched it as a tool for historians. And in particular, he used Isaac Asimov's uh, History of Genetics as a sort of test uh, for his method of mining bibliographies uh, and uh, constructing sort of citation genealogies, tracking who cited whom. And so he constructed, using this uh, citation method, he constructed what he called historiograms, uh, diagrams showing connections uh, between, uh, you know, different figures uh, through citations using Asimov's historical account on one hand and his own citation index for genetics on the other. And so he argued that uh, the historiogram based on the citation index um, is more complete and um, more valuable as a, as a tool for to reconstruct history of biology, of genetics in this case. Uh, neither of uh, those historiograms included women or technicians, however, uh, because they were not cited, right? But uh, Garfield made a case uh, for history presenting history as a data science, basically. So this is, um, on the one hand, this is a typical Cold War story. Garfield's uh, projects uh, for developing science citation index was initially funded by uh, U.S. Air Force. uh, It's also because uh, it presented a tool to gather scientific intelligence by analyzing open data in Soviet mining, Soviet publications, uh, for example. And it is is also a very interesting transnational story. 
So for, uh, for instance, an important role in uh, developing Garfield's data product played uh, the Soviet Union as a market. There is also an irony in the story because the Soviet users who helped to commercialize this computer-based tool counted citations by hand or using simple mechanical devices. So this chapter also presents and kind of concludes uh, the, the book by presenting a larger argument about data-driven nature of uh, those different brands of scientific history uh, discussed in different chapters of the book, all of which required that um, investigators accumulate, process, organize, and display a vast amount of data. And these experiences, I argue, shaped the strategies, methods, and imaginaries associated with scientific history. And this idea of a data-driven society certainly resonates now as a, a reader in 2022 in particular. I thank you so much for joining us today. And perhaps we'll catch you again on New Books Network. Have a great day. You too. Thank you.